Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, got that special opportunity for you that I promised last time for you, our listeners, to receive a copy of Scott's new book. This time, the one, the new book that's coming out called Adam and the Genome. Now, all you have to do again is share your favorite line from today's podcast with the hashtag Kingdom Roots on Twitter or Facebook, and we will put you into a drawing to win a copy of Scott's new book. Now, we're going to do the drawing on uh, February 1st, so make sure to share your favorite line before then if you want a chance to win a copy of Adam and the Genome that comes out soon. We look forward to hearing from you and what your favorite line from our episode is. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about Adam and the Genome. It's a new book coming out by Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight. So Scott, you and Dennis have been working on this new book, Adam and the Genome, and it, from what I understand, kind of looks at the, um, the recent research and discovery with the genome and evolutionary processes and and how that can and needs to really um, affect how we look at scripture and specifically really, I guess, the the creation of the world. So I guess just to start off, why is it important to be having this discussion? Chaz, for 17 years uh, in my life, I taught college students. And um, every fall, when I taught at North Park University, uh, I taught the honors uh, introduction to the Bible class, in which class anywhere from three to ten of my students would be science majors. And I saw in their into their soul. And I saw pain, I saw worry, I saw doubt. I saw in them a wondering, can I be a scientist? and be a Christian? Can I be a scientist and believe in the Bible? Uh, I'll never forget the day a student came up to me. I had been lecturing on Genesis 1 and 2, and John Walton from Wheaton College had just come out with his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1 and 2, I think it's called, or The Lost Mm -hmm. World of Genesis 1, in which uh, he proposes some theses on how to understand Genesis 1, a little bit complex. He gets into what he calls functional ontology rather than material ontology, that the point of these chapters is about the function of these items in the overall work of God rather than their uh, specific origin. John is a conservative. On uh, Even on Adam and Eve, he's conservative. But at the same time, he proposes a model for understanding Genesis 1 and 2 in the historical context of the ancient Near East. And the science student came up to me with tears running down his face. This was a really smart kid. And he says to me, and I got to know him over time. He said to me, you saved my faith today. And we had a conversation in which he told me, he said that his pastor was a young earth creationist who maybe thought intelligent design was permissible, but no more than that. And he said he basically had convinced me that if I didn't believe in young earth creationism, that I I might as well just give up on Christianity because the whole Bible would be false then. And he said, but what you said today has saved my faith because I realized that his interpretation of Genesis 1 
uh, may not be the right interpretation of the text, even though the theology that is being used by that pastor is a theology rooted in a very specific interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. So let me just say why we need to study this is because there are many people in our churches who are scientific types, who, who believe in evidence, and who have come to the conviction that the earth is a whole lot—I always get these things mixed up, um, but I think it's the universe that's 13.6 billion years old or something like this, mm -hmm. um, and they study this on the basis of expansion— and that, uh, you know, they've come to certain conclusions and they and then they look at Genesis one and two and they just kind of shake their head. So so let me just say it's because of scientist types. But when I was a college student, uh, when I first encountered uh, some ideas about uh, evolution or theistic evolution, uh, what could now be called, I guess, in some ways, intelligent design. And I. I was a, I was an inductivist, uh, an inductionist when it came to studying the Bible. I believed in looking at the evidence, mm -hmm. and when I looked at some of this evidence, I thought, "Boy, the Earth is a whole, the world, the universe is a whole lot older than what I was taught as a kid in Sunday school and in my in my church." And then when I was in seminary, I read a book by a guy named uh, I think his name was Dennis Thurman. And he distinguishes microevolution versus macroevolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was sort of the first time when I began to embrace evolution. And I, and I have to confess something. When I, when I began teaching at North Park University, I would look at Genesis 1 and 2, and, and I really wondered, how do I put this together with science? And I, I would give the theories and then move on and hope that no one pressed me too hard. And I... And I and people didn't press me too hard. So I survived. But it was in reading John Walton that I said, I've got to get more involved in this conversation. And about that t time, uh, I became aware through my co-blogger, Roseanne Sension, who is a scientist. Um, I became aware of some other literature like Owen Gingrich and Francis Collins and a guy named Nelson, who teaches at Pepperdine some, who's written a book on evolution, a history. Uh, he's written on the on the Scopes trial. Uh, and so I began to read about this. And then it was an article in a magazine written by Dennis Venema that was just overwhelmingly compelling to me. As I read it, uh, here, here was a major conclusion. This is a major conclusion, Chaz, of the genome project. And that is that the DNA that is currently existing in human beings in the world today could not have come from anything less than a, let's say, a population of hominids or hominins of 10,000 approximately. So that the idea that, that we all came from two single individuals um, is extremely problematic for the genome project. Now, there's there's a couple ways of looking at this, yeah. and this 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 has been sort of the the way Christians have approached science. Now, you have something you wanted to ask? Yeah, you know, well, I guess before we get on to those two things, why do you feel like? And this is clearly such a, a divisive conversation, and it it seems like 
especially maybe you could categorize the fundamentalist camp or um, maybe not even that, just young earth creation, creationists are so unwilling to look at other evidence and, uh, you know, be challenged by that and have to deal with that. Why do you think that is? Or why do you think that, yeah, I, you know, I will, has such a strong foothold, I guess? Yeah, I, will, I, I think they think the whole thing collapses. The gospel is dependent upon a particular reading of Genesis 1 to 2. And, and, I, and I would say this, the way they read that uh, would make uh, the Genome Project a very serious threat. And I can understand why they think they have to junk it. They, they either say, uh, you know, here, I think the two basic approaches have been uh, science is right and therefore we have to reread the Bible mm -hmm. or the Bible's right and therefore we have to reread re science. Right, yeah. Uh, and scientists... I, I want to emphasize in my uh, because of my students, I became very sensitive to scientific students and I wanted to learn to speak into that context. So uh, I, I have developed a sensitivity when they start saying things that scientists say that's wrong. I, I'm going to listen to them. But he, I, I think that, you know, either the Bible's wrong or science is wrong is a fundamental mistake in its approach. So do you think there's I, a third way? I think I think yeah there's about 80 ways I yeah. suppose. I don't know them all, but but yes, I think a third way is to say this. Maybe like Augustine who said at one point something like this, if our reading of the Bible is contrary to science, maybe we ought to rethink the way we're reading the Bible. So I believe that the young earth creationists are misreading the Bible. They're misreading the Bible for two reasons. One is, I don't think they understand what that text meant in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is where John Walton, uh, where Tremper Longman, where Pete End's work comes into play that needs to be listened to. And that is, when you look at John Walton, he says, what would this text have meant in that world it, it would not mean what we would like it to mean in our scientific world, mm -hmm. is that it is, in that sense, it's theological, it's a presentation of, of, of truths about God. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the Bible's true. Every word of it's true. But I don't believe saying that the Bible's true locks us into a young earth creationist interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, though I respect my friends— who believe that, I respect their view of the Bible, mm -hmm. even if I disagree with their interpretation of the Bible. So I would want to urge us to, to recognize, here, here's what's happened to me. I realized uh, that if, if there's evolutionary truths, truths about evolution science, that the universe is a certain number of years old, that humans do, did not come from two people, I realized through that process that I need to be more sensitive to the ancient Near East. It wasn't science that made me reread the Bible. It was science that made me alert to listening to other voices when it comes to understanding what the Bible says. So I developed in my half uh, this book, Adam and the Genome, that Dennis and I have written, and it should be out in the next couple of weeks. Um, Dennis writes the first half of the book, sort of an introduction to evolutionary science based upon the Human Genome Project. And this uh, comes out of a project connected to BioLogos, 
which I, I want to emphasize, comes from the leadership of Francis Collins, the director of the National Institute of Health. You could say he's the number one scientist in the United States. From Tim Keller, who's the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, and at that time with Carl Guyberson, who was a, a professor of science. Carl, so far as I know, is not so much involved in BioLogos anymore. And then it's moved to the Harzmas in, uh, in Calvin, or in Grand Rapids, Deb Harzma uh, is a scientist. And, and so uh, the BioLogos in, invited me to be a part of what they were doing. I'll never forget giving a paper one night. Tim Keller gave a paper, then I gave a paper, then Tom Wright gave a paper. And I thought, this is a pretty heady, heady group of people. In the audience was uh, people like Oz Guinness and Alistair McGrath. And it was, um, it was a very serious engagement over three or four days of discussing with theology people and science people uh, how to talk about science in churches today. These people care about Christians. They care about students, and they care about science, and they care about the Bible. And this dialogue has been life-transforming for me. Well, as a result of that, Dennis approached me and asked if we'd like to apply for a grant from BioLogos to work on a book uh, that we tentatively called Adam and the Genome, and that's what the book ended up being called. And Dennis writes the first half of the book on science, and the second half of the book, I develop uh, an introduction to how to read the Bible uh, respectfully, I develop a model of what historical Adam means. I look at what Genesis 1 and 2, basically, what, you know, mostly Genesis 1 and 2, what it says about Adam and Eve. And then I look at how Adam and Eve were understood in the Jewish world. So I have a long chapter that probably gets more involved than most people want to get involved with. But I think uh, the details have to work out. And I, I was uh, greatly helped by the, the exceptional work by Jack Levison, who's at uh, Perkins in Dallas. And then I look at what uh, the Apostle Paul means uh, about Adam, in, in especially in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So uh, our book project is about Adam and the Genome Project, in a sense, how do we read the Bible after the Genome Project? But I want to emphasize that it's it's to me, it's not that science— proved the Bible wrong, so now I want to reinterpret the right. Bible. Uh, I don't believe that. Um, and I, I don't think that the Bible forces us to choose like that. I don't think that Christianity forces us to choose like that. Rather, it was my listening to science that made me say, you know, maybe we've used the Bible for scientific information when the Bible never intended to be used for scientific information, so that the result for me was, I became convinced that I was reading the Bible wrong. I needed to read the Bible differently. And it took me a while. I, I'm not a specialist in the Old Testament. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time doing that. But uh, I, I sat down and I read a bunch of these ancient Near Eastern texts, Gilgamesh epic and stuff like this. I looked at this stuff and I wanted to see what, uh, what we could learn about Adam and Eve, Atrahasis and texts like that. Uh, I wanted to see what what was going on in the Bible in its world and how that message in the, in Genesis one, two and three would have been heard in that world. So that's, 
that's the sort of thing that we do in the book. Yeah, that's good. So, Scott, I wonder if there's anything else, and you, know, you talked about so far about how, um, in this instance, science was for you an indication that maybe there is a more accurate way to read science. Uh, particularly the creation account. Uh, in your life and in your study, have there been any other, um, I guess, I don't know, disciplines is the right word, but any other things that have shed light on your having a particular reading of the text and then realizing that maybe there is a more accurate way to go about this? Uh, yeah, I mean, clearly the, the world of history the worlds of archaeology can can really upset how some people understand things like Joshua or understand uh, the Davidic kingdom. The world of history opens up our eyes to all kinds of facts that are going on at work in the world that suddenly reshape what we see going on in the New Testament. Uh, for instance, um, uh, issues on uh, same-sex relations. Once you read what the Greco-Roman world was like on sexuality, all of a sudden you, you look at, at the New Testament, you go, wow, this is a big issue. This is the New Testament setting itself over against the common practices of Greek and Roman males. And that's why a guy like William Loder, there's a new book out on sort of four views of homosexuality, um, uh, edited by Preston Sprinkle, and the work by William Loder, who's written five or six books on this topic, and some of them very academic monographs on narrow topics, say same-sex relations or sexuality in Philo of, of Alexandria. Uh, once you realize that, then all of a sudden the New Testament takes on different hues and different angles. And, and so, yes, uh, I've learned to think again about how I've read the Bible over and over and over in light of learning about the ancient world. So uh, that's been a big part of it. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that I want to talk about uh, that, and that is a part of the book is, you know, when it gets down to it, here, here's what happens. People say, well, Paul believed in the historical Adam. Jesus believed in the historical Adam. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we have to believe in the historical Adam. And they, and they make all kinds of leaps. Mm -hmm. So what I did uh, at the end of my first chapter in, in this book was sort of map out what we, what we mean when we start talking about the historical Adam. All right, so I, I developed these seven ideas that there were two actual or sometimes only two persons named Adam and Eve who existed suddenly as a result of God's creation. That's one idea that's connected to historical Adam. A second is that those two persons have a biological relationship to all human beings and that are alive today. I call this biological Adam and Eve. That's, that's a big issue. A third one is their DNA is our DNA. So now we have a genetic Adam and Eve. And that often means fourth, uh, and this is where I think, this is why the young earth creationists, um, they both deserve to be listened to and at the same time, they need to be understood for what they're saying. They believe that those two human beings, Adam and Eve, sinned, died, and brought death into the world. This is what I would call the fallen Adam and Eve. And if you don't, they would say, if you don't believe in that fallen Adam and Eve, then you have no reason for the gospel. Well, 
Uh, that's, a, that's a big question we have to ask. A fifth is that those two, Adam and Eve, passed on their sin natures and to all human beings. And I call this the sin nature, Adam and Eve. That without that sin nature being passed on from Adam and Eve to all their descendants, there would be no reason for redemption. A sixth one is without their sinning and passing on that sin nature to all human beings, not all human beings would be in need of salvation. So now you have a need of salvation, Adam and Eve. And then finally, uh, I think uh, one of the common conclusions is if one denies the historical Adam, which now we got to know what that means, one denies the gospel of salvation. Well, here's what I did. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that Genesis 1 and 2 don't teach that. They don't teach it that way. So this is a construct that is that people think they get from Paul. What I did is I examined Adam and Eve and what Adam and Eve meant in the first century. I mean, in the um, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 in the ancient Near East. But more importantly for my book, is I or my section of the book, I develop uh, how Jews understood Adam and Eve. And I think I can say this without any question, and I don't think that this is even disputable. There is no one in the world of Jesus and Paul in the Jewish world that we know of who believed that construct about Adam and Eve, that they are a biological, genetic DNA group of people who passed their sin nature onto other people, and therefore people are all in need of salvation. I think that the Jewish literature sets up Adam, and very rarely is Eve mentioned, so I call him, her his neglected partner. I think that it, what is common in the Jewish literature is that Adam is a paradigmatic figure of a person who is confronted by the will of God who chooses to sin. So now in that Jewish context, now that's not the only Jewish context, there's at times that there seems to be a biological Adam and Eve at, at work, you know, that there were only two human beings, etc. Mm -hmm. that, that, that idea existed, um, but that doesn't mean that every Jew believed that, nor that Paul believed that. that. That's another thing. You have to see that Paul actually teaches that to say that he believed that. Um, that all leads to an interpretation of Romans chapter 5 and what Paul meant when he used the word Adam. Did he mean this historical, biological, genetic Adam who passed on sin nature to other people and therefore in need of salvation? Does Paul say that Adam passed on his sin nature? What does Paul say? Paul says that, uh, that all sinned. He doesn't say that all sinned in Adam. He says that all sinned. This is a very important movement in Romans chapter 5, 12 through 21. So I examine that in that context, and I'm hoping that— um, that we can have a fair and open conversation about what the Bible actually teaches about Adam and Eve. Uh, and I hope that we can have a fair and open conversation, especially for those who are scientific in our churches, about genetics, about the genome project, and about evolution. And I hope we can do this in a civil and governed manner in a way that helps that it respects the voice of others and that just doesn't start clanging the symbols and start accusing people of heresy or being mistaken. You know, I think that young earth creationists and intelligent design people 
I think most of them are pretty sophisticated. I think most of them are articulate. I think most of them have their ideas put together pretty well. And I respect that. I disagree. In fact, at times I think they're seriously wrong about that. I expect them to think that of me. Mm -hmm. But I don't expect them to be accusing um, anybody who believes in evolution to be a heretic. Uh, we have to be extraordinarily respectful of one another on conversations like this because the stakes for some people are so high that they start saying things about their brothers and sisters in Christ that while they think they're governing or at least protecting and teaching the truth, they may be simply wrong and fostering and foisting false ideas upon people who need to hear other options as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I feel like, you know, in the approach that you laid out of the way to approach this whole conversation is understanding it in the context of it's about the faithfulness to the message of the Bible. And um, it's being willing to allow, you know, voices and observations and different understandings to lead us to a more faithful understanding of the message so that we can you know, more faithfully follow the God that we believe has given us this message. And I think that's what, you know, John Walton does so well of understanding really the the main message and the importance of it and, and how much of a, a bigger implication, I guess, that it has when we understand it, as you said, in the Near Eastern world. And um, yeah, I just think that that's so important for both sides to understand understand that, um, you know, it's about getting and how do we be as faithful as we can be to this message? You know, uh, Chaz, I really, uh, if I thought I was forcing the Bible into a grid, I would change my mind. Mm -hmm. But I found, I found nothing less than liberation in baptizing Genesis 1 and 2 in the ancient Near East and hearing things that I had never heard reading things in books like John Walton's uh, The Lost World, and he's got an, a beautiful academic book on this from Eisenbrown's. Um, I, I found, when I read that, I thought, you know, this, this makes so much more sense to me. And then it was so encouraging to read uh, in Augustine his comment that we need to be sensitive to science. And I, I wish more people realized that, that the historical atom construct that many people use uh, which many people blame on Augustine, was the same guy who said we have to be sensitive to science. Hmm. And I want to be sensitive to science because I want, to, I want scientists in the church. But I, at the same time, yes, even when I disagree with, you know, I have former students who are intelligent design people who write me letters. I, I want to be respectful of them. I'm not going to just dismiss them and say, you know, they're a bunch of uh, you know, I don't even want to use words uh, for the kinds of things that, that we say about one another. I don't think we need to be talking like that. I think we need to listen to one another, listen carefully to one another so that we can help one another grow in our understanding and, and form a genuine dialogue about science and faith uh, that will lead us forward. And, you know, Zondervan has a, a nice book on, I think it's four views on the historical atom or maybe five views and I, I think those kinds of books are, are very helpful for students because they'll say, you know, there's more than one view here. I need to listen to this conversation and come to a judgment based on the evidence that I as the way I see it. That's that's what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. That's good. Well, uh, to end our time together, any closing thoughts about Adam and the genome? 
Yeah, I hope uh, I hope people will buy this book, uh, not so that we can make money, but I hope they will buy this book and form uh, conversations in their church. You know, this may not be Sunday morning Sunday school class, uh, but it could be a small group in your church that uh, really needs to talk about this. And I think Dennis and I would try to help uh, people answer their questions uh, as they have them. And I know that Dennis continues to write at the Biologos website, uh, trying to speak to lay people about these difficult issues. So that's what I hope happens. Great. Thanks, Scott. So um, just to let you know, if you'd like to um, pre-order this book, I'd really encourage you to get on Amazon and to do that. And uh, I'll have that link in the description below for this episode. But thanks again for joining us as we discuss how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.